Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So yesterday was uh, was Earth Day. I think we might have mentioned that in passing. Um, so I uh, I have wrote a reflective piece. It's posted at my website, reconnectwithcarmen.com, um, because yesterday I read um, not only social media related to a 3.8 magnitude earthquake in California, where, as earthquakes go, is relatively minor. But let me just tell you, there was a flurry of social media posts yesterday about, quote, angering Mother Nature or how... Mother Nature was being provoked by these human assaults upon her. Um, There were myriad other references to the Earth, not only as uh, anthropomorphic, but as governed or at least superintended by some retributive divine force known as Mother Nature. It is basic old-fashioned pagan deification of the natural world uh, to those who understand Greek and Roman gods and, and that history. But this is 21st century America. This isn't Rome, right? And so um, if you want to read that, I have it posted at reconnectwithcarmen.com. It's called Mother Nature, Scientism, Creation Care, COVID-19, and the question of how now shall we live? Um, And I want to highlight one article that I read in the New York Times by a former UN official. His name is Robert Hughes. And let me just say that rare, rare are the times when you will read an opinion piece, particularly in the New York Times, that is so straightforward, lucid, and uh, overwhelmingly accurate. So it was an Earth Day post, and it calls for repentance. I mean, it's actually entitled, This Earth Day, We Should Repent. Now, I will admit to you that initially, recognizing that Robert Hughes is a former United Nations official, and recognizing that the New York Times does not often know what the word repentance really means. I was skeptical. I began reading as a skeptic. And then I see him quoting Kevin Anderson, who um, is an engineer and a climate scientist and a guy who, following the uh, jubilation related to the Paris Accord, you'll remember that as the global agreement to bring uh, a human uh, solution to what is only going to be solved by uh, ultimate divine intervention when the new creation comes upon the new earth. Um, But there are things that we as uh, Christians must do in the meantime as stewards of creation, absolutely responsible for that. So when I saw that uh, Kevin Anderson was quoted early in the article, "Mm, my spirit brightened. And then he quotes this German philosopher, um, Max Scherler. And let me just say that if you see somebody quoting Max Scherler, you know you are headed in the right direction. So this is an excellent worldview piece. Um, I really encourage you, uh, if you if you are inclined to do so, to read it. I have excerpt um, pretty significant portions of it in the piece that I have posted at reconnectwithcarmen.com. I just commend that to you. If you're a person who wants to be thinking um, through a Christian worldview about 
not only the things related to the climate, but our responsibility given by God to us in Eden to not only care for the earth, but have righteous dominion over it, um, then let me just invite you to to visit my website today and um, and read that particular piece. Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings. He and I are, whoo, we're going to talk about all kinds of things. We're going to talk about um, Ramadan. We're going to uh, talk about the Minneapolis uh, calls to prayer for Ramadan. We're going to talk about your religious freedom. We're also going to talk about homeschooling and why Harvard thinks it's just, well, bad and should be banned. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Ben Johnson is joining me now from the Acton Institute. I don't mind admitting to him, I believe I've already had too much coffee today. Well, that's good. So uh, I don't know. It might confessional. Too much is not enough. Okay, so I'm a little wound up. So um, I'm just going to start with this. I have a range of reactions and responses to the Muslim call for prayer um, being broadcast in Minneapolis neighborhoods, um, or at least one specific Minneapolis neighborhood. Um, and so can you walk me around in re- the religious freedom conversation um, and maybe some of the ways in which we ought to be thinking about this? Uh, I think that we probably come to the same vast vista of conclusions about this. So uh, Jacob Fry, the uh, mayor of Minneapolis, has come up with an agreement uh, with the local mosque, the Dar al-Hijra Mosque, that uh, the call to prayer will sound throughout the neighborhood uh, which is a heavily Muslim neighborhood, largely Somali uh, and um, uh, northern uh, Eastern African neighborhood, uh, draw through the month of Ramadan. So for exactly one month, the call to prayer will be broadcast, uh, and he has given an, an approval that the Cedar Riverside neighborhood will be able to hear that. Now, the, uh, the mosque has said that uh, this is necessary because during the month of Ramadan, uh, obviously, the, the call to prayer would typically happen, but you would only hear it if you were inside a mosque. And since you can't gather in large numbers, this is a reasonable compromise so that everyone can hear it. Now, uh, I agree that generally there's no problem with um, with a, 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 an agreement for an exception to the rules. Uh, so he was going to have a waiver, and then the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE, is going to uh, pay the price for the broadcasting system so that an entire neighborhood will hear the call to prayer. Now, uh, I have no trouble with uh, a one-time exception to this. For example, this this happens many times for, uh, uh, say, church street festivals or things of that sort, or if there's going to be an outdoor concert. Sometimes churches have these sorts of exceptions. So a one-time exception I have no problem with. However, this is going to be five times a day, every day, throughout an entire month of Ramadan for an entire neighborhood. Now, when, when you're dealing with that, uh, I think that that's, that's a big exception. Also, the imam of the mosque said that uh, this is going to be uh, calming for the residents. Now, my, my, initial, my initial response is that uh, if we're going to have religious freedom, then everyone 
shares in religious freedom under the First Amendment, regardless of, of their religious beliefs. And we can't deny that belief to someone who's uh, Muslim uh, without that same denial being given to us the next time that a church uh, wants to have an outdoor concert and needs a waiver for a noise ordinance. So that's my first, my first impression. However, uh, we just came to the end of Passover. I'm questioning, did Mayor Fry offer to have synagogues broadcast the Dayenu or the Shema in Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods? Uh, if he didn't, then I'm beginning to question a little bit uh, whether this is truly diverse and widespread. Uh, is he offering to have uh, Catholic churches broadcast the Angelus prayer every day, three times a day, or at least at noon every day throughout uh, the entire area? So it makes me question how committed Mayor Fry is to every religion sharing in this. Second of all, there's there's the um, simply the fact that the the call to prayer is being broadcast through an entire neighborhood. Uh, again, largely Muslim, but not necessarily every person who is in that neighborhood, a is Muslim or b if they are Muslim wants to hear this. Uh, it seems to me that uh, there's there's a real question here about uh, whether someone can opt out of hearing it. And that's the real question, uh, it seems to me, is whether someone has the opportunity uh, to, to get out of this when it's happening multiple times. Uh, the, again, the, uh, the imam said this is going to be calming for residents. The Islamic call to prayer, the Adan, begins by repeating the phrase, Allahu Akbar, four times in a row. Of course, many residents won't find that phrase, which has been repeated by several terrorists before killing innocent people, a calming phrase. All in all, it said six times uh, during the Muslim call to prayer. So that won't necessarily be calming. Seems to me that the, the simplest thing he could have done, the correct answer, is what we're doing right now. I wonder if he hasn't made a, an offer to hook up the local mosque with a low-power FM station so they can broadcast the call to prayer and anything else that they wish throughout the neighborhood, and anyone who wishes to hear it can hear it, and no one who does not wish to hear it is forced to hear it. Uh, it seems to me that would be the most reasonable and responsible way to uh, respond to this. Because once you begin making exceptions for whole neighborhoods, you begin to tend toward the situation that holds in Paris and other parts of France and Europe, where certain neighborhoods are considered Muslim territory. And anybody who enters who doesn't follow Sharia law can get mobbed. Young girls who are not wearing the hijab, the hijab or the burqa uh, frequently end up getting mobbed in those neighborhoods. It's, it's assumed that uh, they knew what they were asking for by going into the neighborhood, not complying with Muslim norms. In the United States, our common law, which reflects our Christian heritage, applies to everyone, uh, regardless of their background. It secures our rights, and it should do so across the board. So that would be my greatest concern with all of this. So you um, you have just made a great list uh, of questions that ought to be provoked um, by by this action, and I think that one of the things that I'm curious to see um, is will the Freedom from Religion Foundation raise any concern or alarm about this? And if not, then I think we learn something about them as well in terms of. Um, the targeting of Jewish and Christian groups when when anything public is uh, appears to have a government sanction uh, behind it. So, um, Ben, when we come back from the break, can we pivot to a conversation about homeschooling? I um, and others have been hmm, more than a little alarmed 
uh, by Harvard Magazine and now the Harvard Law School calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Um, Can we talk about that when we come back? Be delighted to. (laughs) You know, because um, Wednesday ought to be zesty and or Thursday. What what is today? See, I lost a day. I might have lost a week somewhere in here, but we're going to get it back. Today's the day the Lord has made. Ben Johnson is here, which means it must be Thursday. Um, and it's, we got some zesty topics in front of us. So should homeschooling be banned? Hmm, that ought to keep us through the break. We'll be right back. Okay, it's Blur's Day. Um, I'm trying to have the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. I need the Holy Spirit right now to uh, to settle my thoughts, get me focused in. I am talking with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. So, Ben, I, I've been reading actually not just this one article, but a range of articles. Um, it all started with a piece in Harvard Magazine calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Um, but then many, many others have weighed in on this. Um, talk, talk with us about what's happening here, and the rights conversation, the parental rights conversation associated with it. Yes, uh, there was a a huge storm that's been stirred up by this article in Harvard Magazine by Aaron O'Donnell called The Risks of Homeschooling. And uh, O'Donnell here calls for what she calls, as you mentioned, a presumptive ban on the practice of homeschooling. She says that there are too many risks for school children. And uh, specifically, she said that uh, homeschool children are subject to higher levels of abuse, that uh, uh, homeschool children are being raised in an academic environment that uh, is subpar, uh, that they're being separated from other children, and that uh, uh, particularly the conservative Christian views that they are having uh, tend tend to um, bring them into a state of discrimination against those who are not conservative Christians. And she mentions a racial component to it as well, as though everyone who is raised in homeschool is basically a knuckle-dragging white Christian bigot. Uh, and that's that's the entire raison d'etre and the uh, production of homeschool, that uh, the average homeschool student would, uh, would fit that profile. Now, I know we have many homeschoolers who are probably listening right now and homeschool parents who are listening right now uh, whose blood is boiling at that. Uh, as a homeschool parent myself, my own uh, my own uh, hackles were raised a bit, but uh, let's let's try and be as rational as possible about this. Uh, the The fact of the matter is that uh, she's simply wrong on not only on the law and uh, on on the presumption of uh, whether we should ban something presumptively, but uh, but also on the facts. So uh, the facts are that. Uh, it was recognized by the founders of the United States and by the Western tradition largely that education of children is primarily a parent's responsibility. It's not primarily the responsibility of the state. And these are the two great differences that we see going into this. There's a certain strand, and you saw it, for example, in a very well-known MSNBC campaign for one of their former hosts, Melissa Harris-Perry, saying we need to stop thinking of children as our children. We need to understand that all children are our children, uh, meaning that they belong to the state, and the state should be involved in raising and educating them. And no one should be allowed to teach their children anything that the state does not approve of. Uh, Now, that is child abuse, because, again, the primary responsibility for childbearing and child rearing, including their education, belongs to the parents. The parents, when it's all said and done, will have to answer for their children. The Bible doesn't say, let the state raise up the child in the way the state believes the child should go. Uh, 
and uh, when he is old, he will not depart from it. That was more in the idea of Plato, who believed that the state should raise all children. The scriptures say, raise up a child, and they're not speaking to a government, they're speaking to parents. And that's the God-given responsibility for us to raise our children. There is no evidence whatsoever that homeschool children are at a higher risk of, uh, of abuse than uh, the average student. Homeschoolers are not necessarily uh, more likely to be uh, of, of a particular background. Obviously, there are fewer school shootings. There's less abuse by uh, fellow students. Uh, there, there are no, there, there are few bullying issues. There's much more bullying in the home, in the uh, public schools than there is in any kind of a homeschool setting. And uh, when it comes to um, the education, and particularly embracing the values that this country was founded on, which are true civic values, uh, homeschoolers are far overrepresented in understanding the constitutional rights and norms. Uh, than anything that is taught in the public schools where the education is typically abysmal. And the idea that uh, there's some form of discrimination on behalf of uh, Christian students is simply ridiculous. You and I have talked at length about what the scripture talks about when it comes to racial diversity, to embracing people of all backgrounds, what the book of Revelation speaks of when it says that members of all tribes, tongues, and nations will be represented, that my house shall be a house of prayer for all people and all flesh shall see the coming of the, the Lord together. That's the true Christian understanding. And anyone who doesn't understand that has a presumptive bias against Christians. And I might add that our sin uh, which typically works at the lowest common denominator, has a presumptive bias against educational excellence. I agree with all of that. Um, I feel like one of the threads that emerges in this, uh, one of the, maybe, maybe it's almost the shadow side of this conversation, and that is a, a growing misunderstanding of, uh, in terms of what does it mean to be conservative and what are conservatives interested in conserving and how individual rights um, are a part of that conversation and the, the concept that rights are actually not granted by government but acknowledged or recognized by government um, and that institutions are only sort of righteously functioning when they are supporting those rights. And then the flip side would be um, sort of a perversion of liberalism. I don't even think it's honest historic liberalism. This perversion of liberalism that really suggests that institutionalism is the better way forward in all things. Um, and that seems to me to be underneath or behind um, this conversation. And I feel like for those of us in the culture today, we need to we need to sort of learn again or remember and then live into, actually become members of again, not just remember it in our heads, but become members of it again. The The reality of what it means to, um, should be, I, I don't mean conservative here in terms of, of political allegiance or alliance. I mean genuinely conservative in the way that we think about um, the conservation of that which is good, beautiful, and true, the lifting it up and the being sure that it is in evidence in the culture in which we live. And part of that is the institution of the family and the 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 very real rights that God gives to parents because he makes them responsible of the sacred trust of the the nurture and admonition of children. Am I completely off base? 
I think that you're absolutely perfectly on base. You know, to quote your phrase, I believe the children are our future. We should teach them well and let them lead the way. And uh, there's no doubt about that. The uh, In all honesty, there was an article that talked about students at Harvard who did a wonderful job. It said that homeschool students had a spirit of curiosity and independence that continues to shape their education. That was in the Harvard Gazette. So Harvard needs to get in touch with Harvard about the actual status of its homeschool students. The most important thing that we can conserve is the, the precious minds of the children that have been entrusted to us by a loving God and the fact that we want to teach them the very best and to give them a lifelong thirst for independent education outside of institutions, outside of what we may teach them after we're, after we're gone. We want them to be independent learners who, who have a drive and a hunger for knowledge. And if we instill that, then we've truly done our job. And if we instill the values that have been passed on to us. I think that there's presumption for institutionalism and there's a presumption against Christianity at this point that teaches Christianity is somehow inimical to state interests. And that is that is very dangerous for us. Uh, when we begin to lose sight of that, we lose sight of the entire American experience from Plymouth Rock to the present. Amen. Um, as a fellow lifelong learner, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a person who studies and seeks to teach at home all the time, um, and in the midst of, of a time in which, you know, frankly, we're all kind of homeschoolers, we're just not all very good at it. Uh, ben Johnson, thank you so much for helping us uh, to understand this cultural conversation we're having today about school and homeschooling. Um, thank you for equipping us in so many ways. You guys can check out what Ben is writing at Acton. A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Thank you so much, my brother. Thank you, my friend. God bless. I feel like you redeemed the first half hour from my over-caffeinated chatter. Thank you. Your chatter is the best thing on this show. (laughs) You're so kind. All right, friends, we'll be right back. All right, we have been talking now for several weeks, even months, about this sense, well, this desire for God to send global revival, this sense that God is um, is doing so in, in ways and places. We've lifted up all kinds of stories from around the globe. We've also had this growing sense that um, we need to be praying for revival right here in America. We have been doing so in terms of prayer, and we are beginning to see right? Signs of that. There is a spiritual awakening underway. So who is going to be there to talk with our neighbors when they start asking genuine spiritual questions, when they start wondering about life and death and um, and not only all that is in between, but all that comes uh, after? Well, there is uh, the mobilization, as the way I will describe this, of something called Go 2020, And so Go 2020 here in the United States is this vision to mobilize Christian believers to engage in, you know, or re-engage maybe in relational evangelism. So the, the, the goal here is to promote the largest evangelism movement in human history. Um, and so next up, I'm going to talk with Dave Gibson, a pastor of Grace Church, Eden Prairie, uh, who is on the Go 2020 USA team. We'll be right back. Not too long ago, a friend of mine snapped a photo of me at my desk. I had three computers running, I was talking on the phone, and texting on my cell, all at the same time. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You probably have moments like that too. Technology can run your life, and it's never more true than for your teen. So, 
Have you stepped out of your digital world lately to connect with your team? Have you made a date this week to have coffee with your daughter or take your son to the driving range? I'm not one to discourage the use of technology, but keep it in its place. This time, turn the cell phone off and take some time for eye-to-eye communication with your team. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. praying for revival, are we also fanning the flame of it by going forth into all the world following the great commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to make disciples, not only all around the world, but right here at home with our actual neighbors. That is the vision of Go 2020 USA, and here to share that vision with us is Pastor Dave Gibson. Dave, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Happy to be with you. Well, it's um it's wonderful to have you with us here today. Let's just cast the vision. What is Go 2020 um and and why why should we not only be excited about it but get engaged with it? Well, you know, Henry Blackaby says, find out what God is doing and then enter into it. And God is moving in unprecedented ways. This is a movement. It's really it, we say it's not an event, it's a movement. It's a movement of God's people. Uh, the Lord bringing the body of Christ together in, in unbelievable ways. Uh, it started back with the Global Day of Prayer, where 100 million people were gathering in over 140 countries to pray on Pentecost weekend. And out of that came a global outreach day on that Pentecost weekend. So they coupled prayer and evangelism, putting feet to their prayers. And that's grown to 140 countries, over 250,000 churches worldwide. And it's become a global outreach month the month of May, and we call it Go 2020. Billy Graham was asked, who's going to be your successor when you leave? And the Lord takes him home. He said, the church. And we have this sleeping giant. We're praying that the Lord will awaken his bride. And the, the vision really is every believer a witness. Everyone can reach someone, and together we can reach the world. So it's, it's really a simple strategy. We're looking at during that window between Easter and Pentecost, and now we're looking beyond that, that this is really a big springboard to mobilize the church to do what Jesus called us to do 2,000 years ago, to go into all the world and make disciples who make disciples to preach the gospel. So we ask individual believers, everyone can reach someone. We say, who's your someone? Someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family, someone in your workplace someone in your school campus, and identify five of those. Could you identify your my five and em- employ a basic prayer, care, share strategy? You can pray for them, care for them, and then lovingly and appropriately, when the Lord opens the door, share the good news of Jesus with them. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Every believer witness, and uh, everyone can reach someone, and together we can reach the world. All right, I'm writing a few. I'm writing. I'm taking a few notes here. I know others are as well. Um, so, who is my someone? I think is a really good starting, really good starting question. Um, and and then, who are my five? Right. Um, that, you, that's, that, that's that's what we're asking. That's, that's what we're so asking critical. every believer to consider. Yeah. And and then, uh, you, and then the prayer care share. 
yeah, I, I've the prayer care share, um, I don't know, formula, strategy, way of living, um, way of going forth is familiar to me, um, you know, as a person who was involved in in Love 2020. I'm wondering if there's a connection here um, to, you know, Luzon. I'm wondering if there's a connection here to, you know, the movements that we have seen over the course of time. Um, you know, kind of totally. talk with us about who's involved in all of this. Totally. It's uh, Kathy Brinzel, Love 2020, Mission America. I, I was uh, executive director of Mission America. That came out Love 2020 is an integral part of this. Prayer Care Share came out of Mission America. I mean, everybody's embraced this vision now, Prayer Care Share. Uh, the Louise Palau Association, we've got the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America, the AOG, uh, Assemblies of God, Church of God, the Foursquare, the Southern Baptists, Liberty Church Network, Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, Youth with the Mission, Every Home for Christ. It's this massive consortium of the body of Christ coming together. All the prayer movements are converging. Prayer and, and mission is this incredible convergence. National Day of Prayer with Kathy Brinzel, uh, Brian Allered, America Praise, International House of Prayer. Uh, Oswald Chambers says prayer doesn't prepare for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work, and that prayer is really the fountainhead from which all of this is flowing. We're seeing there's over 200,000 believers that have been fasting and praying for 20 days leading into Easter and go 2020. Uh, so there's just, God is moving. And uh, when Dr. Edwin Orr said, when God is about to do something great, he sets his people to praying. So it all starts with prayer and then caring. We're never more like Jesus than when we're praying, than when we're caring, and then when we're sharing. And uh, so we're asking individual believers to join in and be a part of that movement. So it's it's really massive. We've got Oh man, hundreds of denominations and national ministries that are part partnering together to collaborate. The vision is to mobilize a hundred million believers worldwide to share the gospel with a billion people. That's B billion with a B, and uh, ten million here in the U.S. to share the gospel with a hundred million people. You know, our answers aren't in the White House, Carmen. They're in God's house. And uh, we're just praying that the church will awaken and rise up and just be the hands and feet of Jesus, especially during this global pandemic. The world is, uh, the shockwave is set in all around us at every level, politically and economically. And we just see that there's no place that's safe anymore. And people feel a deep sense of intense instability and insecurity. And this global pandemic has engulfed all reality and leaves the world really in a lot of chaos. And what's the answer? You know, we, we pray for people. You know, Jesus met people at points of crisis and points of need. You can trace it all the way through the Gospels. He met people in the margin, and people out there are hurting. They're downcast, downtrodden like sheep without a shepherd. And what's the answer? It's Jesus. And uh, Jesus, uh, people who love Jesus, to go out and be his hands and feet. First of all, to go out with love and compassion, meeting points, uh, people at those points of need. But then uh, uh, turning relief into belief and pointing people to the only true solution for fear and hopelessness and anxiety, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Dave Gibson is my conversation partner. He's the pastor at Grace Church in Eden Prairie. He's also a part of the Go 2020 leadership team. You can check it all out at go2020usa.com. Uh, when 
during this very brief break, just let me encourage you to really consider the questions um, that this conversation provokes. When you think about the Great Commission, you know the neighbor um, for for whom God has been leading you to pray. You know the neighbor um, to whom God has been leading you to to share resources in these days, to, to, to genuinely care for them. Um, we have talked about this neighborly care and this opportunity to reach out to people. Um, you know their needs, and so to just go and meet those needs. So maybe that is your someone, and what we're talking about today is how then do you share the gospel, not only in deed, but in word? How do you actually share the gospel? What is relational evangelism? Um, because right here in the United States, we we got to win our neighbors as well. Um, this is a global call. Go 2020 uh, is a global call, but we're going to um, focus the next portion of our conversation on what does it just look like to to turn the prayer and care that we've been extending for and to our neighbors, what does it look like to actually share with them? That conversation in the next portion with Dave Gibson. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dave Gibson. He's a pastor at Grace Church, Eden Prairie. We're talking today about Go 2020. You can find more information and all of the equipping resources for yourself and your church and others at go2020usa.com. All right, Dave, I'm going to I'm going to ask the um the the groundwork ground level question here. Yes. So, how do I how do I do it? Um I have I'm going to use a specific neighbor at the end of my street. Um her name is Nisi. Um, I have prayed for Nisi. I have cared for her. I have received her tangible care as well. Um, so that caring, neighborly caring uh, goes both ways. It's a two-way street. She is, um, she is, she has the most salty speech of any woman I've ever met. Um, mm. She's of uh, European descent. Uh, mm. She's a first, she's, she's a first generation immigrant to the United States. Um, she is older than I am, and and so, how do I take the next step? I mean, I'm I'm a gospel person. Um, yeah. How do I share in word now that I have shared in deed? Such a great question, Carmen, and I think everybody struggles with that. And you mentioned the word of evangelism to most people in the church, and they develop develop flu like symptoms. They think, yeah, you know, I can't do this. I think you were going to turn people off. They're fearful. I think it begins with prayer. You know, you mentioned prayer and care. So you built, I say, build a bridge, a redemptive bridge from your heart to their heart that Jesus can walk across and touch their life. So you've already been building that redemptive bridge. And now I, I use a three life story approach, and that's what we teach. We've got to get to know their story and try to move it from the secular to the spiritual in conversation. So I, I, I call it a share process, secular life, jobs, hobbies, interests. Tell me, and I, I'll, I'll sit in an Uber ride and I'll t- say, tell me your story. I'll talk with my neighbor. Tell me your story. I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Frankly, they don't care about my story all that much or, or God's story. They care about their story. So take a genuine interest in them and smile, use their name. I use some of the Dale Carnegie principles on how to win friends and influence people. Talk in terms of their interests. So I get to know their story, secular life, home life, their family. Tell me about how's your family doing? 
and uh, attitudes, how are you feeling about what's going on in life? Then I try to ask a spiritual question. Uh, do you have any kind of spiritual interests? So do you go to church or have any kind of, uh, where would you say you are in your spiritual journey? And I, I like to say awkward is awesome. You've got to go to that awkward moment where you're willing to ask that spirit. And I ask for permission. You mind if I ask you a personal question? So I've built that redemptive bridge. I've gotten to know their story. And I say, hey, do you mind if I share you, my story with you? And I never, I rarely have people turn me down. I say, do you got a minute? We teach a minute to witness. So we've got that on the website. It's just so easy. In a minute or two, uh, just unpack your before you came to Christ, how you came to Christ, and after. What has Christ meant in your life? And I'll say, do you have a story like that? And they say, no, I just had this conversation with Oscar two weeks ago in my front yard. He's a gas utility guy, and uh, he's surveying the gas lines. And I said, Oscar, how are you feeling about, I asked him about his background and where he lived, and I got to, all, to know a lot about Oscar. I said, how are you feeling about this coronavirus thing? How's it, how's it landing on you? And he's kind of fearful and anxious. I say, hey, Oscar, do you mind if I share my story with you? He said, no, that'd be great. And I shared how Jesus had totally transformed my life. I said, do you have a story like that? He said, no, I really don't, but I'd like to. And I said, wow. And after many years of evangelism training, I perceived that it might be a witnessing opportunity. So I shared the gospel with him right there in the driveway. Oscar prayed to receive Christ. He said, this is the most amazing day. And I said, you know, Oscar, I pray every day. Here's what I'd encourage people to do. Pray every day that God will open up a door for the gospel. I call it praying for Bob. So, so you get to know their story, share your story, your testimony, then share the gospel story. And there's all kinds of great tools. We've got tools on the website, uh, Knowing God Personally, uh, Life in Six Words. There's all kinds of incredible tools. And uh, but I, I say pray for Bob every day. This is something everybody can do. First of all, the B is a burden for the lost. Lord, would you break my heart over that, that friend of mine down the street? What was, what was her name, Carmen? Nisi. Nisi. Lord, just give me a burden for Nisi. And uh, Paul had great anguish in his soul in Romans 9 for his countrymen. Then O is for an open door. You know, you don't have to kick a door down if it's open. You just walk through it and say, Lord, would you open up a natural opportunity to share Christ with that person? And sometimes with people, you know, you've got to take a long haul approach. You don't just go dropping gospel grenades on people. You have to look for that open door. And then the, the final, the open door, and, and then B is boldness. Uh, Lord, would you give me boldness and give me, he, we receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we'll be his witnesses. So kind of use a three life story approach, get to know their story, build that redemptive bridge, look for the natural opportunity to share, ask for permission to share. Hey, do you mind if I share my story with you? And I, I rarely have people turn me down it's my story. And then I'll ask them, do you have a story like that? And people don't. They haven't had an encounter with Christ. I don't ask, well, are you a Christian or are you religious? Are you... But, uh, you know, do they have a story like that where they've encountered uh, Jesus in a personal way? And then uh, lovingly and appropriately share the gospel story. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Yeah, there's a lot of Oscars out there. I, was, I had a conversation with Nashawn, my Indian neighbor. He, we were out raking the other day. And uh, 
did the same thing. And I, I didn't get to go all the way through the gospel with him. I, I, I take it as far as the Lord will take, let me take it. And, uh, but build those redemptive bridges and God will open up amazing opportunities. I just love it. Um, Dave Gibson, thank you so much for sharing with us, um, equipping us, inviting us into Go 2020. We want to send people to the website for resources, go2020usa.com. Thank you so much for being with us today, being so authentic and helping us with such, uh, in such tangible ways. Really appreciate it. Can I just say one thing, Carmen? Steve Douglas from Crew said, this is the opportunity of a millennium. If people are more alive today than ever before, there's more people alive, more people that are fearful and anxious. But we have the people and resources and means to reach every person in the world. And are we going to sit on the sidelines or are we going to get involved? I want to just encourage each of you, get involved, join the movement. Let's go. It's uh, go2020go2020usa.com. But Carmen, I appreciate My Faith Radio and you guys sounding the trumpet for prayer, care, share and uh, mobilizing the body of Christ. Uh, Let's go together. Let's go. Let's go. Amen. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Blessings. All right. I don't know about you, but now I'm energized and excited and I have a game plan. And I think that part of this is right, just like having a plan in our mind. So I know we have a listener whose name is Jessica, who's been systematically reaching out to the people who pick up her trash and um and god has already you know provided these opportunities to prayer to pray and care and i'm just gonna pray an opportunity to share all right we got a whole nother hour up next we'll be right back thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with carmen laburge from faith radio If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.